Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We are finishing Luke this week. It has been a good, I guess, two years since we started this book. Um, And we are in Luke chapter 24, verse 36, all the way through the end of the chapter. Just for your edification, next week we will begin 1 Thessalonians. And that's the way that we operate here. We go uh, verse by verse, passage by passage, scripture, scripture by scripture. Um, so, we'll be at First Thessalonians next week. This week, we are completing the Gospel of Luke. And we have seen some incredible things in this Gospel. Not the least of which, and probably, in fact, the greatest of which is Jesus' death and resurrection come for all men. So as we read, let's just remind ourselves of where we've been. This this Messiah came as a baby. He uh, lived a perfect life. Before he started walking with his disciples, he was baptized. And when he was baptized in the Gospel of Luke, we had the image of a dove coming down and landing on him and saying, this is my son who is well pleased, in whom I am well pleased. And that image was the lowest common Uh, the lowest common sacrifice that could be coming down and landing on him. The lowest sacrifice that could be afforded. Anybody can catch a dove or pigeon in the city. It's not hard to catch them and use them for sacrifices. Poor people in the Old Testament were able to catch these doves and bring them in when they couldn't afford a lamb. So this is the sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the lamb atoning for the lowest of low. The lowest people. And all throughout the Gospel of Luke, we see him dismantle a couple things. He dismantles the karma argument that if I do enough good stuff, God will reward me. He dismantles that. He dismantles the class argument where I was born better than somebody else. He, he dismantles that and says, no, you're not. And everybody's sinful. He dismantles the religious argument that says, I, I make the right choices and therefore I am successful where I am. He dismantles that as well. He tears apart all of our preconceived worldviews, all of our worldviews, and he puts us all down on a plane. So great is his effort at doing this that you notice the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Luke is called the Sermon on the Plain. He preaches it on a level field, and that's intentional in the Gospel of Luke, that he would say that, that he would point out that Jesus preached in a field open where everybody stood on the same level ground, including him. And that's what catches you in the Gospel of Luke. It's the including him. He came to us. The Gospel of Luke exemplifies one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament where God says to Israel, do not say who will come up to bring God down or who will come down to bring Him up to us. Rather, I have come to you. God said that back in Deuteronomy. I have come to you. He said that way back in Deuteronomy. In fact, in Genesis, He tells Abraham, I am here with you. This is not plan B. This is just the revelation of what God has already done in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the physical manifestation of God Himself on the earth. He is the incarnate 
Lord and Savior. And in the Gospel of Luke, we've watched him dismantle everything. And then we watched and we read as the religious elite, the Romans, and the disciples all fail to live up to God. And what's his response? To take their place, die on a cross, and rise again, that we would have life. That all of them have life. Joseph of Arimathea, part of the council. Joseph of Arimathea, part of the council. He's, he's one of the religious elite. Mary and the women who come to anoint him at the tomb, they are, they are the lower caste, right? They're the, the women. Please don't get mad at me. This is ancient Near East. This isn't modern times. I'm not talking about women now. This is women, lower caste in society. They come in and out at will because nobody seems to care that they're there. The Roman guard who looks at him and says, surely this man was innocent. Even the disciples get turned. Everybody, everybody is invited to the gospel. No matter their position, no matter their status, no matter how broken they are. In fact, it seems like the more in Luke, it seems the more broken you are, the better off. The better you are, the more broken you are, the more likely you are to hear the gospel. And this is amazing. So with all that in mind, we read about this resurrection, appearance, and ascension. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, see my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for the Spirit does not have flesh and bone, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat here? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words, that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his, his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. We have this incredible scene where Jesus has already, he's already showed himself to the women. He has showed himself to uh, Peter. And he has showed himself to the men at the Emmaus Walk who were walking seven miles from Jerusalem 
to Emmaus. And he's shown himself to these people. And now they're all gathered back in, in the upper room. I'm, I'm thinking they've all gathered in the room. And they're all together and they're flipping out. They're going nuts. They are all worried. They don't know what's going on. All of them were like, three days ago, we saw him buried, not there anymore. What do we do? And they're all panicking. Some of them have seen him, some of them haven't. And we know from the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John, some of the events that have happened. We know that he shows up to Mary. And she thinks that he's been stolen. His body's been stolen. And and he says, Mary, and he says her name twice. And she goes, oh. And then he goes, yeah, it's me. She thinks he's a gardener at first. It's me. And then she grabs hold of him. And he says, you, you've got to let me go. You've you got to let me go. I know you're excited. You have to let me go. And she runs back and tells the disciples. And the disciples are like, we don't believe her. And Peter and John race to the tomb. And John gets there first but doesn't go in. And Peter runs in. Funny little thing about historical documents is that you have these instances that are thrown in there that don't need to be there but are there so that you know they're historical this is one of them john beat peter to the tomb and then he insists i was there first and then peter like a bludgeon angry like he always is this brash character runs right into the tomb disrespectfully so john puts that into john chapter 21 and we see that this is that validates this as kind of a historical document, but we see that they end up being revealed, and then we have in this past one uh, in verse thirty-four of chapter Luke that he appeared to Simon. We have that story there that he appears to Simon at some point, and he appears to the disciples in the upper room without Thomas, and then he appears to him them with Thomas, and so here we have the summation of that appearance here. Jesus shows up as they were talking about the Emmaus Road, about the tomb being empty, about all these things. Jesus himself stood among them. And I love the way the Bible shows us Jesus showing up. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but it's always as if they almost miss it. It's almost like he shows up around them and they miss it. Just like the angels in the tomb. Remember when we read that? It's kind of like Mary and the other women are looking around the tomb. And they're like, what's going on? And nothing's here. And there's just two angels like, that are behind them. You know, like, yeah, what is that? What? I mean, I thought I did a good job folding that napkin. You know, like that. And then they panic. Oh, no. What is and they just kind of show up. And they just kind of appear behind them, you know. Same with the Emmaus Road. Remember, they're walking along. And Jesus just kind of walks up behind them. Starts talking to them, and they don't get it until he breaks the bread and hands it to them. They're like, oh. and they suddenly recognize him. And they go, "Didn't our hearts burn within us when he talked to us about the scripture?" And that's the way Jesus tends to show up for us. Often, even now, even now, I don't know if you've ever thought back over your life at the moments when Jesus came around, or or when you when you knew the Spirit of God was moving, it's almost accidental. You, you don't usually intend for it. You don't usually see it. It just kind of comes. You're in a worship service, and just something gets said or played, and it just breaks you in a thousand pieces, and, and you're going, well, I didn't expect that to happen. Or you're getting your hair cut. That was one of my favorites growing up. I had a lady cutting my hair, and we were talking. I was in, 
I was in college. I was getting a haircut. I've never liked any of my haircuts. And I told this lady that when I started, when I sat down, I was like, look, you're not going to please. Like, I'm just, I just don't like my hair. I'd rather buzz it, but my mom won't let me. And so I was getting this haircut and the lady is talking to me. And I don't know what I said. I said something about my car. I don't even remember. It was something, something benign. I was talking about driving back to college the next week or two and how I needed a haircut to go back to school. And uh, that was back when I had lots of hair. It was real luscious. It was nice. Um, it's gone now. The, uh, but back then, you know, she's cutting my hair. And I said something about my car. And she just broke and started weeping. And I was like, what is going on? Come to find out that the Lord God had just decided to show up in that moment and decided he was just going to kind of mess with her heart a little bit. And she started crying and talking to me about how she's struggling with certain things in her life and she really needed Jesus and how something I had said had brought Jesus into the picture. I love those moments. They're out of nowhere and they happen all the time. If we're just attentive to pay attention to them. He shows up all the time in my morning devotionals or in my evening, my evening readings or in my prayer time, just randomly just shows up and there will be weeks where I'm like, Lord, are you even there? Are you even there? And then I'll be reading my, the scripture and something will stand out. And it's like he's just standing over my shoulder going, that's cool. That's cool, isn't it? That's how this is. They're in a room together. They're just hanging out. They're nervous. Peter is talking about wanting to go fishing again. Because he's Peter. And he doesn't like to sit still. John is talking about, can we just relax and just wait and just kind of enjoy the moment here? Thomas is telling everybody he doubts that anything's happened. Andrew is counting people. Andrew's like, well, two of us are missing. Let's go get them. Where are they? Let's go find them. Philip is like, I invited five friends. Like they're all in the room doing their disciple thing, but they're all kind of afraid and nervous and Jesus just kind of starts talking. And they're, whoa, where did he come from? And so that's what happens here. Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a ghost. That's what, that's what that translates to. It says they thought they saw a spirit. They thought they saw a ghost. They were like, oh no, what's a demon? Like one of them, you can imagine, one of them's like looking for garlic or something. Like some sort of ancient remedy to get rid of the ghost in the room. And so they, they flip out and Jesus Peace to you. This is like, whoa, 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 That's what he's doing. He comes and he goes, peace. He says, peace to you. And they flip out and he's going, hey, 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 stop. Hey, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Like I do with my kids right here, right here. And look at my hands. Look at my feet. I have flesh and bone. You can feel them. I'm a person. I'm not a ghost. And they still have trouble. Look at, look at the contrast. Jesus says, peace to you. The disciples are startled and frightened and think he's a ghost. Jesus then turns to them and says, in verse 38, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? 
Jesus turns to them and says, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? They are troubled. They're in this upper room and they're troubled in spirit. Have you ever been troubled where you just don't know what's going to happen next? Of course you have. Everybody has. So that's a, it's one of preacher questions where we know the answer ahead of time, right? Like they, you know what it feels like to have trouble. You know what it feels like when somebody goes, hey, I need to talk to you, but I can't talk to you right now. Let's talk about it later. I'll let you know when that's going to happen. And then, no, don't ever do that. That's wrong. <laughs> you just send whoever that was into an anxiety spiral, right? Like, don't do that. But that's what, that's the trouble that they're feeling. You know, that gut feeling that just bothers you. You can't go anywhere. They're feeling that. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what. And in the back of their mind, you have to, you have to, grasp like in the back of their head they're all going we let jesus down all of them are going we let him down and we know that they feel this way because it's exemplified in peter in john chapter 21 who jumps out of the boat to swim to shore who then when jesus gets there is like bring some of the fish and he drags the whole net you know and then Jesus is like, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter's like, you know I do. You know I do. You know I do. And we know that what they're feeling is this. We don't know what's going to happen. We let Jesus down. And the beautiful thing about Jesus' presence is, yeah, you let him down. That's the point. That's the point of his love. No matter how much you let him down, he's still here. It's because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about what we can do. It's about him and what he's done and his rescue of us. So yeah, you let him down. You're, you were supposed to let him down. You, you can't save the Messiah. He saves you. You're the broken one. We're, we're the broken ones. And so... He comes into the room and they are troubled. And Jesus asks them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts stir in your heart? Hear, hear the beauty in that question. The beauty of that question is he's looking at you going, it doesn't matter that you let me down. It doesn't matter that you're broken and can't fix yourself. It doesn't matter that you can't get everything right. It doesn't matter. Why are you troubled? I'm here. I'm here. You see, all through the Gospel of Luke, the disciples, the religious people, the Romans, everybody has looked at life as though you have to earn something from God. You have to earn something. You have to be right. You have to do right. You have to act and, and behave accordingly. And Jesus says in this moment, by asking the question, he says, you need to stop. It's, it's as if he's looking at us going, you need to stop thinking of it that way. I have saved you. I have taken the punishment for your sin. I have rescued you. Why are you troubled? You need not be troubled. He has saved. He has come. He has redeemed. And all the joy that we get from it. So Jesus, why are you troubled? And the disciples, doubting and struggling, 
He says, verse 39, See my hands and my feet, that as I myself touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So he, he validates his, his existence. He validates his, his resurrection, showing them, I am alive. You can feel me. I'm alive. This is not a spiritual thing. He is not, this isn't figurative. This isn't a figurative passage. You can't read this and go, well, Jesus just spiritually showed up. No, he's physically here. He tells them, feel my body. Jesus literally rose from the dead. Now, I want you to understand, Christian, that sounds crazy. I want you to understand that that sounds crazy because it is. But it's true. The good news of the gospel is crazy. That God Almighty, the holy, perfect Lord of all creation, who made everything, who made everything, decided to come down, take on human form, live a perfect life, and die in your place and my place. God dies for the ant. You understand? He dies for the ant. He dies for the thing that's unaware of his even existence, even though he is Lord over all things. He dies for the smallest. He dies for you. He dies for humanity. Little, little compared to him. God who hangs the stars on nothing. Who The earth is his footstool. The earth is his footstool. I don't know if you've ever had an ottoman. A footstool, technically, slightly smaller than an ottoman. And that's where he sets his feet to relax. He who lives beyond the sky, who is greater than all that we can imagine, all those galaxies and things that are still cropping up. I don't know if you pay attention to any scientific, like the telescope things, but they find new ones. It's not new that we can see now. It's new as in like, hey, that just came about. Like a new star. And then you ask them, how did that happen? And they go, there was an explosion. And you go, how did the explosion happen? And they go, well, it's just, it blew up. And you go, right? He is showing his glory and presence everywhere. This God became man, walked with us, and he wants to know you. He wants to know you. And then he dies. And he resurrects, and he physically resurrects. Like, gets up physical, gets up, walks around, and, and starts doing weird things like showing up in locked rooms. Show, disappearing and reappearing. Walking behind people and talking to them about the scripture for hours before he actually tells them who he is. This is crazy. But it's true. Christian, own your crazy. Own it. Own the fact that you believe things that sound crazy to the world. Own it. It's been historical. We are in history. It is validated that Christians are looked at as crazy. And that's okay. In fact, it might even be a good thing. Because the news that God has made a way for you to be saved and for me to be saved and for us to live eternally 
is good. And it's Looney Tunes. But it's good. And it's true. And even though it sounds crazy, it is the greatest news that anyone could ever get. That this life of suffering and pain and toil and struggle is not for nothing. Is not for nothing, but rather has deep abiding meaning in Jesus Christ that we can walk with Him and know Him and delight in Him and then we can know God and then all eternity is ours. Oh, how beautiful. He shows His hands and His feet and then He... He, it says this, this interesting phrase here in verse 40. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, do you have anything to eat here? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in front of them. Now, two things are happening here. One, so the phrase, while they still disbelieved for joy, is a little weird for us. It's, it's an odd Greek phrase. It means they thought it too good to be true. That's what they all thought. They're all kind of doubting themselves now. First they were doubting Jesus. Now they're doubting themselves and they're going, I don't, this seems too good to be true. This seems too good to be true that you would save and redeem and rescue and that the lowest common denominator would be rescued by you and that you'd rise again and defeat death and we could have life eternal and you are alive here, present with us. This seems too good to be true. And you can imagine one of them's like pinching himself. No, no, yeah, it hurts. It's not a dream. Like, you know, they're, they're pinching themselves. One of them's like looking at, looking at the other one like, are we sure that's Jesus or is it somebody wearing a mask? Like, you know, they're trying to scooby-doo him. Um, they're, all those things are going on here. And they're like, did Jesus have a twin? Do any of his brothers look like him? Do we know what his brothers look like? I mean, have you seen James? Is he the same? Like they're going back and forth about this. You can imagine them struggling, but they're, what it means is they think this is too good to be true. And they're having a hard time accepting it. So Jesus goes a step further. He goes a step further and he, this is what I think happens. He takes a seat. He goes, you guys got any food? And they bring it out, put it on the table, and he has a meal. He eats with them. Sits and eats with them. There's something about a meal with somebody. There's something about sitting down across from somebody with food that just brings peace. There's something about it. All through Scripture we see it. Anytime Jesus wants to communicate himself, anytime God wants to communicate his character, there's always food. The sacrificial system... I mean, it would look like a barbecue to us, right? Just, it'd be a sacred barbecue. They wave things, they pray prayers, they've got liturgies that they do at the beginning and at the end, but they're grilling. Literally, they're grilling, and God has spices that are lined out for them to use. Put this on it, put this on it. Not only does God care about sitting down over a meal, He also likes it to taste good. He seems to value that. Something about sitting down over a meal with somebody brings peace to the soul. God designed us that way. So these men are troubled, and what is Jesus' answer? Hey, let's eat. That's why we have a 
This is, this is the reason, by the way, this, this very scene is the reason why we have a rule at Sovereign Grace that if you need to talk to somebody about something serious, you take them for pie or cake. Because people don't get mad when they're eating dessert. So if you need to address something, it's best to do it over pie. Don't worry, we also have a rule that you don't ambush people. So we tell people exactly what we need to talk about, why we need to talk about it, and then we go, let's go get some pie. So they know this is serious. Right? This is part of the reason. This scene right here is part of the reason. Jesus, sensing the trouble in the room, says, give me some food. And he proves himself to be, to be alive by eating, because ghosts don't eat. So he proves himself to be alive by eating. But he also brings peace to the room. Because there's something about sharing a meal. There's something about sitting down to eat. There's something about eating with each other. That God designed us for that, for, with that in mind. So he takes it and he eats before them. Now we have the second scene here. And remember, Luke here in this portion is summing up several months. He's, so from verse 44 to verse 53... He's summing up the teaching of Jesus over several months. And we know that because of Acts chapter 1 and because of Matthew and because of Mark. They record a great deal of things that happen in between this upper room visitation where they feel his hands and he eats and he proves he's not a ghost. And these, uh, these other events that happen all the way to the ascension. Luke sums all that up in these verses. We find this passage, this 44 to the end here, dispersed throughout the other gospels so verse 44 then he said to them these are my words that i spoke to you while i was still with you that everything about me in the law of moses the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled then he opened their minds to understand scripture and he said to them thus it is written that christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from jerusalem so Jesus then explains to his disciples. We know that this happens over several months. But he explains to his disciples the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So in Hebrew, the Old Testament Bible is called the Tanakh. It's the Torah, the Navim, and the Ketuvim. The Torah is the first five books. That's the law. The Navim is the prophets and some of the poetry. So you've got the prophets and some of the poetry, which we put at the end, we put it after the historical books, but we've got the, the prophets and a few uh, books that we kind of go back and forth between poetry and prophecy. And then we've got the Ketuvim, which is the historical writings and Psalms and the poetry. So those are all together. Jesus leads them through the Old Testament to show them who he is. Jesus leads them through the Old Testament to show them who he is. Now, Remember on the walk to Emmaus. Do you remember? What's he talk about? The Old Testament. He starts in the law of Moses and goes through the whole Old Testament with them. Until they get to the house and then he has communion, right? And then he has communion, breaks bread with them and shows them the body broken and the blood poured out for them. And when he breaks the bread, they see him. They go, oh, it's Jesus. And then he's gone. Right? Here, he is leading them through the books of Moses, the... Uh, prophets, the Navim, and the Ketuvim. 
the Tanakh. He takes them through the Old Testament. He takes them through the entire Old Testament to show them the message of the gospel. Now, if Jesus Christ used the Bible to talk about who he is, why do we think that we should use something else as a culture? Why do we think we should use something else to talk about what he is? The scripture itself was used by Jesus. If anybody had a better testimony as to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, Jesus has the best one. If anybody could have made up a story that encouraged people to understand the gospel, Jesus is the one who who does that. He's the one who can do that. And don't get me wrong, there are places for those things. Jesus talks in parables. Don't get me wrong. There are places for those things. Jesus tells his testimony. There are places for those things. But when it comes down to comforting the soul of people who are troubled and showing people how to live a righteous life in Jesus Christ, to live a full life in God, what we need to be giving people is the Scripture, not encouraging stories or platitudes. Scripture and God's Word. That's where we find our discipleship. That's where we find our strength. Why do we think other things are necessary? They're not. There's a place for them. You can tell stories. Don't get me wrong. You can tell stories. You can, you can give parables. You can, you can tell. You should tell your testimony. Like you should tell people what Jesus has done in your life. We see that Paul does that in the New Testament, in, in the book of Acts. We see Peter does that. We see that those things happen. But when we are discipling those who are in need of learning to walk with Jesus, Scripture is our foundation for it. Even Jesus made the Old Testament the foundation for what he told these guys. So why would we go anywhere else than Scripture to train people, to teach people how to live like Jesus, to teach people how to love well? We wouldn't. We'd go to Scripture. Jesus himself went to Scripture. Jesus teaches through the Scripture, and look at what he teaches through the Scripture. Verse 46, and he said to them, Thus it is written, Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now, if you got, do you have, anybody got a reference Bible? Has all the references that are made in there? I want you to notice, verse 46, there's no references to the Old Testament. If you've got a reference Bible, these are not direct quotes from the Old Testament. Did you notice? You didn't notice. Okay, you should notice. There's no direct quotes in there from the Old Testament, which tells you these are statements that are generally true throughout the Old Testament. Jesus just gave you a lens by which to look through the Old Testament. He gave you the glasses to see. He gave you the lens to see the Old Testament. That Christ should suffer and die. On the third day, he would rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem. He gave you a lens by which to read the Old Testament. We read the Bible with Jesus-colored lenses. When we read the Old Testament, that's how we're reading it. Own that. When you speak to academics 
who talk about how you need to look at the Bible as it was to the first, you know, to the first, first audience. You say the first audience should have looked at it through this lens of Jesus. Because Jesus is the author. Should have looked at it through this lens. When you read in books and they say that you should look at the Bible through the rabbis. Look at the Old Testament through what the rabbis say and how they interpret it. No. No, Jesus gave us the lens right here. When we read the Old Testament, read it with a Jesus-colored glasses on. That's not only okay, it is right. He just gave you the permission to do it. Jesus goes through the Old Testament and then shows them that it's written, that this is written throughout those pages. And then in verse 48, he gives them a commission. You are witnesses to these things. Now, witnesses means that you are going to speak about these things. You're going to testify about these things. It's what he says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. You will be my, I mean, chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. You're going to go and tell everybody about this. You're going to look at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. You're going to look at life through the lens of Jesus because that's the only way to have life. And you are going to proclaim it to the world. Note, he doesn't say you can be witnesses. He doesn't say you might be witnesses. He says you are witnesses. Again, I want you to think about the disciples who are in the room. These guys are not all-stars. They do not have seminary degrees. They are not brilliant. They are fishermen. They are tax collectors who have rejected their people. Traitors. They are zealots who just a couple months ago or you know, maybe, maybe a few years ago for some of them if they really understood Jesus' teaching early, they were hoping to kill Romans. These, these are not the cream of the crop. And Jesus says, you are my witnesses. Not you might be, not you could be, not you can be, you are. He decides to work through the people who believe in him because that's what he wants to do. And that's good. You, me, all our eccentricities and brokenness, all our weird habits, all the things that we, we do that don't make sense, all our anxieties, where we look outside the window. Nobody's outside, right? Okay, good. I can go outside. Right? That's all those weird things that, we, that plague us. Jesus decides that you're going to be his witness. I'm going to be his witness. These fishermen are going to be his witnesses. Verse 49. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now Jesus sends the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, upon them. And again, he's throwing back to the Old Testament. Remember that the promise given to the people of God is that the Word of God would come the seed of God would come, that He would change the hearts of His people and that His people would bless the nations with the message of that seed, with the message of God. So we have in Colossians chapter 3 this beautiful picture of, and, and in chapter 1, of God coming into your heart and changing your heart, killing sin and destroying it. Chapter 2, you're, it says that the flesh has been circumcised. You have been it's been cut off and 
and you are no longer a slave to sin, Romans chapter 6, no longer a slave to sin, but now slave to righteousness, back to Colossians chapter 2, you have this flesh removed from you, and you now have a new nature, Colossians chapter 3, the new nature is uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit that lives inside you, and is constantly renewing you into the image of its creator. After the image of its creator, you are constantly being made new after the image of its creator, and you have the Holy Spirit indwelling within you, so you have the power to stand up against sin and darkness and proclaim the truth. That's the power that they were waiting for. The Holy Spirit power. And so they wait in this upper room until He comes with fire, and if you've read Acts chapter 1 and 2, you know that this comes and the Holy Spirit lands on them at Pentecost and they start to preach and they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus has come, died, the Jews killed him and, they, and he rose again and gives life to all who believe in him and he gives this, Peter gives a great message going through the Old Testament again and they have power from on high to reach all nations. This has always been the plan. This has always been the plan. That God's people would take the message of Jesus Christ and they would share it with all nations. It's been the plan since Abraham. Abraham was given the message that God would bless him and then he would in turn bless nations. So prevalent is this that if you pay attention to where Abraham lives over and over, you get images like he lives in between Bethel and Ai. Right in Genesis, you familiar with this? He, he plants an altar. He lives right in between the two cities. And he puts an altar between Bethel, the house of God, and I, ruins. Or destroyed. That's what I means. Destroyed ruins. So, Abraham acts as the conduit of sacrifice and offering, bringing the message of salvation from the house of God to the people who live in ruins. I mean, from the beginning, God has been giving this message that He has brought salvation through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. That's a prophecy about Jesus rescuing us from sin and death and darkness. It's been from the beginning. Even before that, God gave the greater light to rule the day and the lesser lights to rule the night. Jesus then in John chapter uh, in John chapter seven, seven I think seven eight and nine talks about himself being the light. And while the day is here, we must do the John chapter five. While the day is here, we must do the works. Or sorry, John chapter nine. While the day is here, we must do the works that the Father has given me. While it is night, I mean while it is day, for it will soon be night. You Christian. Lesser lights. You reflect Jesus. God gave the sun to rule the day and the lesser lights to rule the night. You are a reflection of that greater light. And while it is night now, guess what we get to be? Lesser lights pointing to the greatest, pointing to the greater lights. Even from the beginning, the gospel message was written in creation. Go back even further. Second verse of the Bible. Second verse. There was chaos, tohu, va, bohu. And the 
the waters, or, or I'm sorry, the, the, there was um, over the deep. I need to read it. Good grief, I'm going to mess the whole thing up. Chapter 1 of Genesis. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Look at this. From the outset. Darkness, deep. Two things that we can't know, that are unknowable, distant, and terrifying. The deep being the image of that which is unknown, and death. The deep is where hell is. The deep is where condemnation is. All through the Old Testament, the deep is where scary stuff lives. Scary stuff lives in the deep. Darkness. You stumble in the darkness. We need light. We can't see. We can't move. We can't do anything. You stumble in the darkness. The very second half of that verse, check it out. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. All of a sudden, darkness is invaded by the Spirit of God. And the deep that was unknown and terrifying and shocking to us was all of a sudden waters. It's known. God brings life and knowledge and truth out of nothing. It's been this message from the beginning that Jesus Christ brings life. That he brings substance where there's no substance. From the first verse of the Bible, the gospel is screamed. That in the presence of God is reality. That in the presence of the Spirit of God is life. That we know Him. And we can be known by Him. This is the beauty of the Scripture, of the Word of God. It's been from the beginning the same message. That God would send His Son into a world and redeem the world. And that world would see Him and know Him and no longer walk in darkness and no longer walk in the deep and the fear of of the deep, but rather everything would be conquered and Jesus Christ would give life where there is none. This has been the case from the beginning. You are clothed with power. And Jesus then ascends into heaven. Verse 50. Then He led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up His hands, He blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is a summary of Acts chapter 1. This passage is a summary of Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, we see a couple of details that are there. There's about 500 people there and they so this has been some significant amount of time about 500 people are there and Jesus walks out and he says goodbye and he ascends into the sky and they watch him until he's beyond the clouds now have you ever seen a balloon go off in the sky and then you panic because if you were like me and you were raised that's like oh no I'm destroying the ozone right you let the balloon go right and, and all these anxiety things from your elementary school years go off in your brain. Oh no, now we're going to have like hurricanes all the time and, you know, because you let the thing go. Like all those things spiral. I, I want you to just imagine watching the balloon go. Or a drone. If you've never seen a balloon do it, watching a drone go into the sky until it's out of view. I just want you to imagine that. The, Make it a person. That just got weird. You make it a person who, who floats up into the sky 
until he's beyond the clouds and you can't see him. I don't know if this was fast or slow. I have a, my imagination tells me it's slow. It drifts up, and I, and I think of it like a balloon being drifting off. And if you just watch, it goes really, really high for a long time. So they watch him ascend into heaven. We can take some great heart in this. And um, that Jesus had already said he was going to do this. He said, where I go, you cannot come. Don't worry, I go to prepare a place for you. He tells them, um, I'm going to go and you can't follow. He's gonna, he tells them all these things. And then he literally goes where they can't follow. Not a one of them could go, I'm coming. Nobody. He flies up into the sky. And then he says, we can remember back in John chapter 16, I think it's verse 7. John chapter 16, verse 7, he says, um, but it is better that I go and send the comforter to you. Why is it better that he ascends into heaven and we get the Holy Spirit? I just want to close with these thoughts. Why is this better? First, Consider the nature of the ascension. Where is he going? Where does he ascend to? He ascends to the highest place. He ascends to the throne. He is king of all things. And he ascends to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's the first thing. That means all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And if he tells you, you have authority, then yeah. Nobody else can tell you otherwise. He is the top. If he tells you to do something, no one can, no one can intervene and say, well, it's not what you're supposed to do. You need to do this instead. No one has that authority. He is the chief authority. He ascends to the chief authority. Second, why did he ascend? And we know this from Hebrews chapter 6. He ascended so that he would be your eternal high priest. That he would be your eternal high priest. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. Uh, then if you're wanting to jot these down, 9, uh, 11 through 12, and then 24 through 28, talk about Jesus being our eternal high priest. He is not temporary. He has ascended into heaven where he lives eternally as your high priest. Second, or third rather, how is he ascending? He is defying the very thing that keeps you here. Just consider that for a minute. He's defying gravity. A law. He's not propelling himself into the sky with a fancy machine that lets him jump off the ground and then glide back down. That's what airplanes are, by the way. He's not just jumping really high. He is defying gravity. He is showing his authority over even the most basic principles of existence. I love that argument for sovereignty of God that says um, that people will make about God being free and man being free and, and they work in con congruity together. They do, and that's true. It is true that man has free agency and God has free agency, but of the two, which one is more free? According to this text, God. He's not bound by gravity. Evidently, he's not bound by space or time either because he keeps showing up in locked rooms. He keeps going back and forth. So, this is 
the beauty of the character and nature of God. How is he doing this? Consider the ascension that everything that ties you to earth, he is free of. So who else can get you out of the things of earth? Who else can walk you through the troubles of earth? But the one who is absolutely free of those things. This is the beauty of knowing Christ. Then think about when. When. When he ascends into heaven, when does he do it? He does it then forever. He does it then and it's forever. It's a permanent, he has ascended. He's going to come back one day. But guess what happens when he comes back? He brings it with him. According to the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, when he comes back, heaven comes with him. And it all meets here. He has ascended to the throne of glory forever. No one else lives forever, past and future. Both directions. Jesus is eternal and he's ascended to eternity. Finally, what did he ascend for? Victory. Victory. Victory over the darkness. Victory over death. Victory over all turmoil and suffering. Victory. Jesus has brought the victory over sin and death and darkness. And we have life in him. And that life is eternal. And that life is covered in his blood forever. And that life is made righteous and whole for all time. And he sits on the throne forever. Oh, then we see Jesus and we worship. Verse 52. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the result of Christians when they see Jesus. When they recognize where he is, when they understand what's happened, when we talk about Him ascending into heaven and having victory over the darkness and life, when we look in the Scriptures and see how God has had this from the beginning, when we walk through the Gospel of Luke, one of the things that it empowers us to do is worship. To worship and have joy. And oh, there are moments of deep, abiding sorrow in our lives But when we respond by turning to the Word of God, we find victory over the darkness constantly. We find life in the midst of a dying world. We find light where there is no light to be had. We find creation and creative power where there was emptiness and nothing. We find substance where there was void. Oh, this is what it means to walk with Christ, that we would trust Him and in Him find life, and not just life, but life abundant poured out for you in the cross of Jesus, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and loves you. Lord, we pray.